everybody. Welcome to Curly Girlies Cracking the Kid Code with Atara and Grace. I am Atara, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com. And I am here today with my co-host, Grace Cross. Hi, Grace. How are you? I'm well, Atara. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. Oh, well, I'm Grace Cross. I'm the owner of The Baby Spot, the world's only global parenting magazine. And you can find me at thebabyspot.ca. Atara, we have a very important and intriguing guest today. Who do we have? Grace, audience, we're working to bring useful and easily digestible information and expert guests during these turbulent times. So today we are speaking with Dr. Leo Galland. Dr. Galland is a practicing physician in New York City and the author of numerous best-selling books. Dr. Gallen is recognized as a world leader in his field of medicine. Educated at Harvard University and NYU School of Medicine, Dr. Gallen won the Linus Pauling Award for his trailblazing vision that created a bold new approach toward healing for thousands of doctors. He has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Dr. Oz Show, the Today Show, Good Morning America, as well as on PBS, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. So he crosses all lines. As if all of this wasn't enough, Dr. Gallen has received the Albert Norris Marquis Lifetime Achievement Award from Marquis Who's Who's for his contribution to medical innovation. Welcome, Dr. Gallen. So happy to have you here today to help us parse through the many details surrounding the coronavirus. How are you? Uh, I, I'm doing fine, and, and I really thank you and Grace for giving me the opportunity to share what information I can with your listeners. Yeah, I'm, I'm really so happy to be speaking to you because I know that you're one of those physicians who's um, always researching and learning. That's just one of your uh, trademarks. And I know you spent so much time trying to understand this virus. I received a really informative newsletter that you put together. Um, so can you tell us, start off, if you don't mind, with what is the most striking thing that you have noticed about the coronavirus that is making it so frightening? Uh, it's kind of the way that it sneaks up on communities. Two or three weeks ago, who would have thought that the situation in New York City would be what it is now? It's unless you really understand kind of viscerally what exponential growth is, it's it's really hard to see this happening. Uh, or or unless you are an epidemiologist or um, or someone who studies epidemics like this. Um, it, it spreads just this spreads twice as this is twice as communicable as the flu. It is at least 10 times as lethal as the flu. So we just start with that. And and it spreads so readily from person to person that all it takes is one person who spreads it to two and a half people and each of them spreads it to two and a half people. And within a short time, a whole community is riddled with with the virus and there are many many more cases in the US at present than the numbers would indicate. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, I remember in um early March when it was first discovered, you know, in school in Westchester and the community in New Rochelle and it somehow at that time seemed like okay, we can identify these people and we can contain it here. But within about 2 weeks it went from you know, just that area to really all over. Well, the one uh, person in New Rochelle, there were 50 people who were tra who were who were infected as a result of 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 having something to do with him. And you have to get 
out in front of this really quickly. Even then, it may not be enough. Um, in Germany, they got out in really quickly in front, anticipating what would happen. You know, I mean, it's kind of like being like playing against a chess master. You have to be thinking five moves ahead or something like that. So what did they do in Germany specifically? Um, they started with widespread testing immediately, right off the board, um, tracing down contacts. Um, also, I mean, Germany was prepared for this in other ways. They have universal health care, universal paid sick leave. So, um, you know, they were able to really... Um, they were just able to limit the number of deaths. And for the number of cases in Germany, the number of deaths that occur uh, have occurred is very little. Also, Germany has about three times as many hospital beds per person as Italy or the United States. Wow. You know, um, what I am wondering, and I'm interested if this is something that has been proven or that you're working on, I feel like this year, you know, I have three school-aged children, and they were in school, and the flu seemed to be rampant, more so than ever. And I, when I look back at it, and I remember it was, you know, November, December, was this perhaps the coronavirus and that everybody thought this was just the flu? Because I even read in today's New York Times that I think there was a nurse in Alabama that said, you know, she had seen like an abnormal amount of pneumonia cases this past winter. And she too is saying, was this maybe not just pneumonia and we just had it tested for it? So what are your thoughts on that? It, it's possible. What I want to say about the flu is this was a bad flu season for kids. That is in general in the population, um, you know, there were like 40 or 50 million cases of the flu. The um, It was less lethal than previous flus. The mortality rate was 0.5%. Uh, I'm sorry, 0.05% rather than 0.1%. But there was an increased number of hospitalizations among children in, in this past flu season. The, the um, thing about the coronavirus, about this uh, SARS-CoV-2, is the official name of it is the disease is COVID-19, is uh, there's been some very fascinating genetic research done looking at the genes of this virus and from a comparative perspective. And it was just published uh, about a week or two ago, and it supports the following conclusion, that this virus has been around for a long time and that it probably or may have caused occasional disease in humans. Um, and then a series of mutations led to a change in the virus, which first became obvious in Wuhan, in which um, the virus became much more able to attach to cells quickly, which then enabled to human cells, which enabled its uh, exponential spread and created the pandemic. So it, it is possible, although uh, I think retrospectively, it's going to be really hard to know. But it, this wasn't something that just came out of Wuhan, out of nowhere. Interesting. And um, there's also um, what, what I always say, like, it seems when I speak to friends of mine, right, Grace, we, you and I have discussed this, there's a lot of like amorphous kind of symptoms that people seem to be having, right? Like I have a lingering cough, I have a headache, I'm just not feeling like myself. And 
there it's going on, you know, we're hearing, you know, this is incubating for five to 10 days and then you get better. But I've got friends who are saying, yeah, really? Cause I've been not feeling just not feeling well for, you know, three to four weeks. Is that the coronavirus in just a different rendition or is that something else? Well, we're beginning to see cases of lingering illness. And um, I mean, I have a patient right now who is recovering from coronavirus and cough's been lingering for about three weeks. She uh, contacted family in Italy who said that uh, people there, even with very mild illness, are still testing positive for the virus for zero days after being infected. Uh, I'd seen 38 days, but uh, before for one of the people on the um, on the cruise ship, the Diamond Princess. But uh, this is a virus that doesn't go away quickly. And it, it, and it does start in this very um, gradual fashion, which is very unlike the flu. Uh, the way that the British describe it, and that's the way I described it in the little handbook I put together, I think there are really two phases to illness with the coronavirus, and maybe there's a third. The, the first phase, is so trivial that you may not even seek medical attention. I mean, in today's world, you might because you'd be worried about it, but ordinarily you, you, you wouldn't even consult a doctor, which was the case for 80% of people in China. And um, the symptoms might just be fatigue, not feeling so well, uh, abdominal pain has been described in some people without respiratory symptoms. Sore throat is pretty common. Originally, they said, well, it doesn't really look like, feel like the cold because your nose is and stuff, but I'm seeing people with confirmed coronavirus uh, infection in whom a stuffed nose was one of the initial uh, symptoms, and often no fever at that stage, and it lasts for five to seven days, and in at least 80% of people, it just goes away, and that's the end of it. They're still infectious. They were infectious before they got sick. They're infectious after. The other 20% enter into phase two, in which there's increasing cough and shortness of breath, more likely to be a fever, but not always. Diarrhea may occur, um, sometimes even some neurologic symptoms. And, uh, and it, that's the group of people that get really sick. Now, most of them are not going into the hospital. They're being turned away because there isn't room. But about five, a quarter of those people will require emergency hospitalization, intensive care. Okay. I just want to go back to the initial, you know, 80% who are just having like, you know, the fatigue, the headaches. Could that um, linger? That's really my initial question. Could that linger for several weeks? And could that then morph after several weeks into a phase two or if you're just mild for a period of time, you remain so? Well, so far, the pattern of phase one, one lingering for several weeks hasn't been described. And, the, and this other more frightening idea that this phase one illness may linger for several weeks and then suddenly morph into phase two, that hasn't been described either. Pretty much, and, and the word around the world right now could change is that if you've been sick for 14 days you're probably out of the woods um, but there are people 
who've been ill for nine or 10 days who suddenly go downhill. And, and that's what um, a lot of my patients are worried about. Right. Didn't they recently take the prime minister, I think, of England to the hospital after I think it was 10 days, right? Right. I'm, I'm not sure what Boris Johnson's status is right now. Okay. but Last I've heard, he was admitted um, to the hospital, but he says he's in good, it's just a precautionary measure, which makes a lot of sense because he's the leader of that country. So they need him well. Um, and what we're seeing, doctor, is uh, even though different countries are handling the coronavirus outbreak in different ways, um, it's across the board that the world wants a vaccine. Can you explain to our audience why this can't suddenly just pop up and everyone just start getting vaccinated? Well, the, first of all, when you create a vaccine, you have to, there are, there are certain circumstances that have to be fulfilled for a vaccine to be successful. You have to have identified what antigens, what proteins that are part of the virus are actually going to provoke the immune response that you need. So you need to know something about the biology of the virus. You can't just take um, a crude, a, de a dead virus and then start injecting it into anybody. Well, it, look, they did that with smallpox and, and it worked, but most of the time it, it doesn't work. So that makes a lot of sense. Have um, scientists in the United States or abroad identified that protein or proteins that is inhibiting, that's causing this virus? They're, they're working on it. And, and most of the interest has to do with, with what are called the viral spike proteins. Coronavirus um, looks like um, it has these, these spikes that come out of it, which make it look like a crown. I don't know what kind of crown exactly, but <laughs> an ugly one. It looks more like like one of those um, uh, spiked balls on the end of some medieval weapon. Um, but um, but the spikes are what attach. There's a protein on the end of the spikes that attaches to human cells. And so that's what they're trying. They're trying to figure out how do you prevent that from happening. I read something, um, clarify this for us, about um, a vaccine that they had used for TB that might be useful in this case. The idea there would be that the, the vaccine against tuberculosis, which is not 100% effective, basically stimulates the immune response. Uh, it stimulates the production of something called gamma interferon which has antiviral as well as antibacterial effects. And um, it's used, for example, in the treatment of bladder cancer to stimulate the immune system to respond um, to superficial bladder cancers and get rid of them. So there may be a nonspecific effect from the BCG vaccine, which is, you know, which is widely used in Europe. However, the, certainly most Europeans received it and uh, there's no diminution of the rate of okay. COVID-19. Okay. So tell us about then, let's move on to the, the possible drugs. I know, you know, our president is touting this malaria drug, hydrochloroquine as the numerical, but as CDC says, that's really not the case. <laughs> and so... Well, let, well I don't think it's a miracle, but I think it does have some value and it sh should be more widely available. Uh, during the SARS epidemic about 18 years ago, SARS was a close relative of, of this virus, although there are differences. Um, SARS had a much higher fatality rate, but it spread less readily. This, this is 
created a pandemic, but fortunately, uh, the mortality rate, which is high and, you know, maybe 14 times as much as the seasonal flu, is still significantly less than it was with SARS. So um, during the SARS epidemic, chloroquine, which is an old anti-malarial drug, people were taking it during in Vietnam, for example, uh, that was um, used in a number of places but not in any consistent fashion. And there was an impression that it helped. So um, hydroxychloroquine is a second uh, version of that, which has less toxicity and lasts in the body much longer. And that's also known as Plaquenil. Hydroxychloroquine has been widely used in the treatment of autoimmune disorders because of its immune modulating effects. and um, a Chinese uh, research team published a paper maybe two, three weeks ago in which they had compared chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine in a laboratory in test tubes and found that hydroxychloroquine was much better than chloroquine at killing the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And they proposed a five-day treatment protocol for people who had the infection and were known to have it. About that time, a French researcher began administering hydroxychloroquine to uh, hospitalized patients in the south of France who had uh, COVID-19 and started looking at the rate at which the viral load decreased. And he found that compared to people who were re receiving conventional therapy, the viral load decreased more quickly. Um, some of these patients were also getting azithromycin, which is an antibiotic, because about 50% of people who get hospitalized with COVID-19 pneumonia have other types of infections at the same time. Many have bacterial pneumonias on top of it. So a lot of them get antibiotics. And he found that the rate of viral clearance was even greater when they got azithromycin in addition to hydroxychloroquine. In fact, if you look at his curves, you would wonder what does azithromycin by itself do because the impact of hydroxychloroquine was kind of mild, whereas the combination when azithromycin was added was pretty dramatic. Now, he, this was a small study and they didn't really report on clinical outcomes and it wasn't controlled. He's expanded it from the original 26 to about 90 patients with the same results. Uh, that work is not widely accepted. I have a patient in Paris right now who's suffering from COVID-19 and uh, went to the emergency room and they basically refused to give her this treatment. They said, no, we don't believe in it. So it's not, um, it's not only in the U.S. that, there are, that people have not been accepting it. The, the feedback that I've gotten from colleagues and from the, my uh, own experience with it is it's not a wonder drug. Timing is very important. It may be helpful early in the course of infection. It doesn't really do anything for people who are very sick. And it probably is not good for prevention. So, so there's like a period uh, of time where if you get in there and give it to them, it could right. be useful. Okay. So right. it sounds- now, there are controlled there are controlled, controlled studies going on, which will give us more information. So why is the CDC I so resistant? 
You do. Well, you know, part of it is part of it is protocol and bureaucracy, which is one of the problems that got us into this situation to begin with. The FDA did not move quickly enough, and the CDC did not move quickly enough with testing. Because, well, you have to do it this way, and there are these regulations, and, and there was nobody in charge saying, okay, this is not your usual situation. We have to change all our protocols and get ahead of this. So without that kind of leadership, um, bureaucracy flourished and did what it usually Really does. to our detriment. Now, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was an opportunity. Germany had offered to send us um, hundreds of thousands of testing kits, and they were refused back in uh, January or February. So, yeah, they, we really needed to be to have leaders listening to the scientists who saw what was happening um, and preventing the bureaucratic um, messing around from interfering with the proper response. So I, I do think that this drug should be more widely used, especially in conjunction with azithromycin. Is that the Z-Pack? Um, that's the Z-Pack. And um, yeah, but, I, but I've already seen from my own experience that that's not, that's not the miracle treatment that's going to that's gonna suddenly stop this epidemic in its tracks. I think what our audience needs to know is since there's different uh, reactions, different bodies seem to react differently. And depending on uh, pre-existing challenges you may have, your body um, reacts differently to COVID-19 than others will. So there is no one big answer for all of us that's going to cure all of us. It sounds like there's going to be different answers for different uh, like challenges that people have. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes, I think that is correct. I think a multifaceted approach is going to be important. Right now in China, there are 80 different clinical trials going on looking for treatments. And some of them involve fairly toxic drugs, but some of them involve very benign uh, substances. There's a bioflavonoid called quercetin, which has been available as a dietary supplement for a long time. It's found in many foods. It's been shown to have anti-allergic effects. And um, they're studying quercetin against COVID-19 in China based upon research that was initiated at McGill University. Um, and actually, uh, a grant, a Canadian grant is, is funding this. Okay. Right. I know um, since I'm based in Toronto that we're, we're really trying to find answers, as is the, the whole world. And what I love is that we're sharing these answers. How important is it for countries to share their research with one another? It, it's vital. It's vitally important. Uh, one of the um, most exciting new therapies actually is coming out of Canada, but it's in conjunction with uh, Germany and other European countries. And it's a, an injection, which would be given intravenously, of a, pro, of a human protein, which is the target of the coronavirus, uh, of COVID-19. That is, when COVID-19 enters your cells, it attaches to, an, to a protein that runs across the cell membrane called ACE2. And ACE2 is actually a vitally important protein. For health, it's an enzyme, and when when COVID 
when the virus of COVID-19 attaches to ACE2, it uses that protein to enter the cell. It also destroys the protein or exhausts its activity. And um, it is possible to trace all of the clinical manifestations of this virus to its um, its effect on ACE2 and the loss of ACE2 activity in cells. So what this research team has put together is a soluble form of human ACE2 that is infused intravenously, and that will have two effects. One is that the virus that's circulating in the blood binds to it, and then it can't get into cells. Uh, that's the main reason it was developed. But there's a much more profound effect, I believe, based upon other studies using ACE2. ACE2 heals the lungs, and it doesn't just heal the lungs when there's an infection. It heals the lungs from toxic exposure. It It is, um, so I would, ex I expect that, that this, these clinical trials, which hopefully are, they're getting underway right now, will produce um, a radically different approach to the treatment of this virus that isn't killing the virus um, or killing human cells that have the virus in them, but, but rather correcting the kind of deficiency that the virus produces. Uh, it's also my belief that the variety of, the, of responses to this virus among different people and different groups of people has to do with the resilience of the ACE2 that they have to begin with. So as you get older, as you get older, the activity of ACE2 declines with age. Um, it is probably lower in men than in women, which is maybe one of the reasons why men are more susceptible to illness from this. It is definitely, it's definitely lower in people with diabetes, heart disease, and high blood pressure, who are, those are the major categories of pre-existing conditions that increase susceptibility to illness from COVID-19. Uh, what is interesting is that immune suppression by itself may not increase susceptibility to illness. Okay. Oh, well, that's interesting. There's a, study, yeah, there's a study that came out of Italy that looked at, um, it was mostly looking at children who had gotten immune suppressing drugs for um, transplants. They don't, they have, they have a very low uh, rate of infection and no higher than other children. Um, and the same seems to be true with adults receiving cancer chemotherapy or transplant medications. So um, a strong immune system is not necessarily the answer okay. to this. A strong and resilient ACE2 may be. Which brings me also to my next question, because um, I'm wondering, um, there's a lot of talk about healthcare workers that are on the younger side that seem to be getting sicker than the general population, um, both here in the U.S. and Italy. Is that the case that you're finding in your work? Well, I, I think there are two things that determine susceptibility to illness. One is the viral load that you're exposed to, and the healthcare workers who are in hospitals have a much greater exposure than people who, let's say, happen to um, just meet someone at a dinner party. Um, the, the other th thing is that the idea 
that young people are somehow immune to this virus, which came out of the early reports from China, has not at all been borne out in the West. And the rate of hospitalization among people aged 20 to 44 is just as high as it is among older people, uh, people, let's say, above the age of, um, of 50, 50 to 65. It's the same. Um, so young adults should not think that they're not going to get as sick. Well, I, that's, um, I think that needs to be getting out there much more than it is because, yeah, you know, it right? Really needs it needs emphasis. Two weeks ago, I mean, they were, the beaches were open, right, in Georgia for spring break, as, as though, you know, they were completely nothing to worry about for that age group. So, um, right. And the, of course, even if those people weren't getting sick, they were, that made them even more dangerous yeah. because they would, would then go home and spread the virus to other people. Absolutely. You know, and also based on what you were saying about the viral um, overload uh, with healthcare workers, I also read um, an interesting article about an Italian um, hospital, I think it was in Southern Italy, where they, this particular hospital, I think it had previously been used um, maybe for the AIDS epidemic. So they were really aware of how to um, contain their healthcare workers and the protocol. And they found that in this particular hospital, nobody, none of the doctors, nurses got sick at all. Are, do you know what I'm referring to? Are you familiar with that? Well, um, not the exact story that you're telling, but without a doubt, there are protocols that have been developed over a long period of time and with really intense research on how to protect healthcare workers from patients with highly communicable diseases. And um, they, they require equipment, they require space, they require planning, and that has not been implemented in this country. In fact, when the first um, Americans were evacuated from Wuhan who were, and brought to Air Force bases in the U.S. and then were tested by people from the CDC, People from the CDC were not given proper protective equipment themselves, and about a week and about a week after that, the first um, reported U.S. case occurred. You know, maybe ten miles away from an Air Force base where these where people were being housed. So that's really uh, why it's so important that when everyone discusses, you know, PPE in the hospitals and doctors not having enough um, of their equipment, this is really why and what they're referring to? Yeah. Healthcare workers are quarantining themselves. They are not going home to sleep with their in their homes. They are not around their families. Yeah, I have actually a cousin who his wife and he are both doctors in New York City, and they have two school-age children they have their sister, one of the their sisters, an older girl watching, like in, in her 20s, watching the girls. And they actually rented their own apartment. They do not come home to see their children, except from afar, yeah. because yeah. they're so frightened. There are huge personal sacrifices being made by all the people going into the hospitals, doctors and nurses, but also I mean, the hospital workers, the janitors who have to take this contaminated trash out, the porters who have to, um, you know, who, who are moving sick patients around. Absolutely. Security and, yeah, guards, I mean, receptionists, they, all of them. 
Right, right. They are all out there fighting a war um, on our behalf at great personal risk. Right. What are your thoughts, I'm curious, on um, bringing um, partners into labor floors when a woman is giving birth? Because I know they had stopped that, started that, and I have actually a family member, another one who is a OBGYN, and she actually said that she finds it for herself very problematic having a partner there because it's a, she has enough worrying about the actual patient who may be COVID positive. What about now she has to worry about a, a husband or, or a partner? What are your thoughts on that? I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Uh, you know, one of the one of the big problems with this disease is the isolation that it creates. I, and people that I, the patients that I have who are sort of quarantined at home because they're sick. I mean, they are. Even if they have families, they're shut off in one room and you know and cannot see or touch their children, you know, I mean, and this, this goes on for weeks and, and the people who live alone, they're alone in their apartment. Um, and human contact is so important. Um, I mean, I try to check in on them every day, you know, remotely. And, um, and if they have friends, they have friends checking in text by text or, um, video chat, you know, every two to three hours, because you need that contact. What what you do in the setting where someone is pregnant and about to deliver, I think is very... It's a difficult question. You, you, right. It, you have to... It, you, I don't think there can be one blanket um, statement For, about Right, it. right. It might depend, right, if it's a first baby where you're really overwhelmed by it, or if it's your third baby where you're like, okay, I've done this. I think I can do it myself. So that might be something to consider. Um, I, I'm also, you know, very troubled myself with the idea of patients dying alone. You know, they live this whole life and it's, and suddenly they're there in the ICU and there's nobody to hold their hand and there's nobody other than via Zoom, right, for their family members to really say a goodbye where they can sit in front of them and hug them. And I find that so troubling. And I, I know that um, I read, I actually heard one of the um, presidents, I think in a hospital in Tel Aviv, Israel, said, you know, we just can't do this anymore. We're watching too many patients die alone and we are changing our protocol and we are providing hazmat suits to immediately fam immediate family members and we are allowing them in um, to say their goodbyes. And I think that's there's something to be said, right? Not to underestimate like human touch, right? Which can't it, be substituted it, it's, it's for really, Zoom, right? It, it's uh, it is yeah, it's really important. I don't know if a family member in a hazmat suit provides that kind of comfort. Um, I um, I do think that um, in order for that to happen, there has to be less chaos. And right now, the situation is so chaotic that that I don't see that happening. Right. You're saying there has to be some sort of order and more protocol in place. Right. Okay. That and, makes and sense. And actually, which which leads to to what this whole quarantine is really about. The quarantines are not going to eradicate the virus. Their real goal, and the governors have been very clear about this, is 
and so of the scientist, is to slow the spread of infection, decrease the number of new cases, so that it, it becomes manageable and the healthcare system isn't totally crushed. The, but um, as uh, Governor Cuomo said, 40 to 80 percent of New Yorkers are going to be are going to acquire this virus over the next several months. And the so my goal in working with my patients and some of the educational work that I've and research that I've tried to do is to figure out how do you get people who are not yet sick to be in the kind of health that they're more likely to be among the 80% than the 20%. And if that happens to enough people, does the 80% expand to 90%, which would be of great, um, not only personal benefit, but social benefit. If a smaller percentage of people who get this virus are requiring hospitalization. Okay. So give us hope. Are you, are you getting close to an answer or closer? Well, well look, I, there's, well, I, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons to believe that there are things that can be done that will do that uh, outside of drugs, and and I'm I'm working on that. I'm looking at the impact of natural products um, and integrative therapies on ACE2, and it, for me that is the fulcrum on which the personal response to this virus. Uh, hovers. I mean, it's like a seesaw. Either you're on this side, or you're on that side. And if and if you can, if you can do enough to protect ACE2, then maybe that person is going to just go through phase one, recover, and move on, and then hopefully be immune. And if you get enough people, if you get herd immunity to this, um, then it's not going to come back the same way. And will that be, can that be done in months or how long of a trajectory? Oh, I think that? it can be, I think it can be done in months. Yeah, I think it can be done pretty quickly, but, but I'm not sure. I'm the only experience, actual hands-on experience I have is, well, what happens to patients of mine, you know, who, who, who do this and you can't know about anything preventive. You can only know uh, about people who are already, already sick. We're really charting new waters. I mean, it's just fair to say, and it sounds like there's not going to be one and all vaccine. There's going to be different vaccines or different treatments due to the different symptoms and previous health challenges that people have. I mean, that seems to be the route that it's going. It's not. There's not going to be one solution to this. That's it. I think it's multiple solutions as what you've been reiterating throughout our chat. Oh my goodness. You know, you've been just such a wealth of information and have really humbled people into understanding how, um, how big this virus is, how it's going to impact the world and, and change us forever. And, uh, you know, we can't thank you enough for all of the information you gave us Except today. I have one thing that I don't want to let you go without asking, because I know it's been on my mind. I suspect it's on others. Can you envision a scenario where they um, take away the stay-at-home orders, let children back into school, and then suddenly everything starts all over? Or will oh, we oh. have gone past that? I, I can envision it, and the scientists are predicting it if the if the stay-at-home orders are rescinded too quickly and see that's that's what i fear may happen here because the the way things are being done in this country is like a patchwork 
of different kinds of regulations. Right now, what we're seeing in New York is maybe the benefits of the quarantines that went into effect two or three weeks ago. Uh, they're already seeing that in California and the state of Washington, which was a week ahead of New York. Um, and I think San Francisco might have been the first place in the country. And then it became statewide in California. Now, um, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey have pretty similar orders. Texas has still not done that statewide. Florida did it much later. So we're going to see a shift in the map of this illness away from the places that imposed these orders to the places that didn't get there early enough. And that always raises the possibility that there's going to be some place that can bring it back, spread it to others. Um, so without a uniform national policy and sealed borders, uh, it's really hard to know what happens on the other end. So this is a time where we really need the federal government to, to do something for all of us as one unit, as a country. I think you said that well about the patchwork. Um, so again, thank you for coming on because this has been very enlightening for me and I know it will be for our audience as well. Um, so I hope that you know you have uh, an ear to uh, the powers that be because I think you have really useful powerful and very important information to disseminate, and I hope it gets out there. Um, and I hope you'll come on again to update us as things move along. Okay. I, I'm available anytime for updates. Thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to your audience. Thank you. It's an honor. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye for now.